Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. This is Ben Currier. I'm here with Ian Price Murphy. Hey there, Ian. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Um, can you give the listeners a little bit of background info about you? I mean, I know what I've uh, dredged up online, but you know, you can give them a little bit of insight <laughs> as to what makes you tick and what kind of things you're doing these days. Dredged up. Hmm. <laughs> Yes. Well, I uh, am the founder and the co-owner of Moxie Bookkeeping and Coaching, which is a virtual firm based out of New York City, although I myself live in Northern California. So very cool. Yeah. We just help um, what I think of as right-brained entrepreneurs with the money stuff, because we know that um, there's both people who don't really have time, but there's also people who uh, have deep levels of shame and terror around money. Um, yes. and I'm familiar with that feeling and conquered that feeling. And so that's, that's kind of my happy place is helping people move past that. Well, that sounds like a useful and important skill. Uh, do you want to tell us how you got there? What, what was your, what, what did you start out in? I imagine you didn't start out in coaching. No. So I started out with a liberal arts degree, you know, that had zero marketable skills. And I have a theater background and my father is a jazz musician and my mother worked for herself as a doctor. My sister's a filmmaker. So we have a very creative family. We have a lot of, you know, artists, dancers, freelancers, massage therapists, again, mm -hmm. California. <laughs> yeah. That just tells you everything you need to know. So, um, you know, growing up, my mom was actually in medical school. So we grew up without a ton of cash, but, you know, she was going to Stanford. So we were surrounded by money. Yeah, which I think kind of started me off on the wrong foot because I didn't really understand why so many had so much and we didn't. And yeah. more importantly, I think just sort of classic middle class family values is it's not polite to talk about it. So what that meant was, um, you know, my my parents actually put me on an allowance of a hundred dollars a month when I was twelve years old you know, which was a billion years ago. So it felt like a ton of money at the time. Yeah. But I was doing things like buying my own toothpaste and my own socks. Oh, so, so like I, a budget for everything. Right. So I, uh, again, I, you know, I get what they were going for, but for me, it had the exact opposite effect of like, what can I get away with not mm -hmm. having to spend money on so that I've got money to go to the movies? Um, and yeah. I just had no financial literacy. I just never learned financial literacy. It wasn't taught it in school. My parents didn't give it to me, et cetera. So my money management skills were based on these kind of ridiculous BS axioms that I was told, again, by a solid middle-class family of work hard and you'll succeed, follow your passion and you'll do what you love. And that led me pretty quickly to bankruptcy because... I wasn't like outspending like a crazy person, but I was living in San Francisco, which is not a cheap city. Even mm -hmm. back then it wasn't a cheap city. And just between like gas, groceries and rent, you know, because I was um, 
under earning because I didn't know, again, no financial yeah. literacy. I didn't know what it was. I was working as an office manager for someone for $9 an hour and bartending on the side and like picking up these side gigs. And like, there's just no way that yeah. anyone could live on $9 an hour. So I had a flat where I was sharing with like seven roommates, um, but just, you know, got into multiple tens of thousands of dollars of debt, credit card debt, just trying to like stay alive and fed. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that. I know that game. I did a lot, a lot in college whenever there's car repairs or whatever, it certainly went on the, the credit card. Absolutely. And it's interesting what you said about growing up around people who have money when you don't, because I went to an all guys Catholic high school, which is a lot of rich kids at like a prep school, but I was very much on the lower end of the scale. And it's interesting to see just how much of a different life they live and also the different things that they don't have to think about. Yes right? Poverty is exhausting. Like that's one of the things that I think if you don't know, you don't know how expensive it is to be poor and how exhausting it is to be poor. It's a full-time job just trying to like figure out, figure it out, right? What can you do and all of the calculations and all of that stuff. And, you know, so yeah, so I, you know, I was very independent very early on by design. My parents wanted it that way. And, and, and so I had this recovery then of like, oh crap, I got to learn all this stuff. Because again, I felt, you know, as one might imagine, pretty crappy about hmm. going through bankruptcy in my twenties, yeah. you know? Just out of curiosity, what were you planning on doing with the liberal arts degree? Was there a specific path you were going down? Is it theater or something? Um, theater mostly. Yeah. Theater, theater. Is that and the film. dream? I mean, you know, the, the ideal. I don't know that I, new at that time you know again I was like oh I'm supposed to be exploring and finding my passion and the money will follow and you know no it didn't it doesn't always <laughs> yeah it's interesting because I had a very different path but almost the same result where I picked accounting as my major just I didn't even know what it was I think even two years into it I still didn't know what it was some days I still don't know what it is, but <laughs> it's so boring but I thought well I then I won't have to think about it and I'll be able to have money or whatever. Cause when I would look at like creative fields, it's it, to me, it seemed like it was too much of a risk, but it was the cooler thing to go after for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you had experience with the managing of your you know, family finances. And then that brought you towards maybe I could get better at this and learn that as a trade. Yes, exactly. That was, that was kind of where I was left with was you know, I've been doing this office management thing and I kind of was learning bookkeeping a little bit through that. And that turned out to be my marketable skill. And I just realized that, that it was that sort of literacy of, you know, income management, expense management, contract vendor management that, that interested me and, and had been missing from my own personal life. And so that just began this kind of, you know, insane 30 year journey to like figure it out and figure out the money stuff and make sure that I never was in that position again of being in debt or, or just being broke. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, the bankruptcy you want to, since the failure is the subject of the show, do you want to discuss a little bit about how you maybe got there or things that mindsets or, or ways of getting yourself out of it or through it? Yeah. So the out of it and through it, I think, was all about mindset for me that that it took um, it took a lot of shifting of what was acceptable to be able to file for bankruptcy 
And a lot of that was just doing the calculation that given the insane percentage rates that I was paying, that credit cards are somehow allowed to charge, that, that I could spend the rest of my life paying that off, like literally the rest of my life, and maybe still not finish the principal because the interest was so insane. And that was when it just became clear to me, you know, either I'm going to be a slave to my debt forever, or I can take this out. Yeah, and, you can either protect your ego or yeah. give into what makes sense. Right. And the, the ego was not protected. The ego <laughs> definitely bit, you know, bit the ground, ate dirt. So, but, and so again, the, you know, the sort of um, deal that I made with myself of, I'm going to figure this out was what led me to this career, um, which I've actually found really satisfying and, and I love it. And, and so the mindset for me, a lot of it was just letting go of those, you know, pieces of quote unquote, good advice that you're given that just don't serve you. Like, you know, put your head down, get the work done and you will make money. It's like, well, no, not if my boss is only saying they're going to pay me $9 an hour and I have no benefits and no paid time off and no sick days. Like, you know, then it's inevitable that, that any slow shift at the bar or, you know, holidays, I hated holidays because I, then I was missing work. Yeah. And that's a crazy way to live. It's not a great, not a great work-life balance and it's not a good no. mental work-life balance, <laughs> like a good uh, goal for how to, how to live. But it is true. That's how you get, you know, put in these boxes and told, you know, these, this is how you get through it. And a lot of times you don't question the advice you were given or if you should maybe add some, you know, amendments to those pieces of advice. Right. You know, and, and my father, of course, was always saying, well, I put myself through college. You know, why can't you? And I was like, because college was a fifth of the cost and yeah. minimum wage actually paid for stuff. And that's not, you know what I mean? Like, I appreciate your point of view, but it's a little outdated. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. It's hard to compare, but it was a bit easier back. I guess part of that is they followed that advice and it worked out. So then they right. obviously give it with much confidence, but as things change, it's hard to, to pivot mentally around some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, did you just learn through doing, or did you go to, did you go back to school or how did you get better? how did you level up your skills? I learned by doing, and I learned by reading, you know, so, so I just sort of began to dive in and read every finance book that I could get my hands on. I mean, I was doing that already a little bit to try to prevent the bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. um, and the frustrating thing about it was it may have been good advice, but, but it never spoke to my situation, you know, where I can't even remember who it was, but it was the classic, like, well, stop buying coffee. And I'm like, I don't buy coffee. Like who mm -hmm. buys coffee? I make coffee and I bring it with me, you know, and this like, oh, we'll just put $5 aside a day. But because I was constantly running at a negative, like none of those things. Yeah. <clears throat> if, if your options are save five bucks or put $5 towards that credit card payment or whatever, yeah, that'll cost you less in the long run. Right. Or at least you can't start saving until you have a, a, a method of making more there than what you're spending on interest. Right. And, you know, now it just seems foolishly obvious to me that yeah. like, of course you can't, you know, you have to be earning enough to be able to say, how do you manage your money? Because if you don't have any money to manage, that's a one-way ticket. 
you know, there are very few uh, destinations available at that. So that, you know, so I just, I started really learning and, um, you know, it's funny because the system that I used, is, you know, is the system that people recommend now, like whether you're talking about Dave Ramsey or Mike McCallowitz Profit First or any of those, it's this divide and conquer, right? So opening separate bank accounts for the separate purposes so that when I got money, especially once I started freelancing and the money was not a regular paycheck, I had to sort of say, well, let me fund, you know, my rent and utilities first and then fund my groceries and then, you know, whatever's left over goes into this, all the other things that I need and, and being able to say, well, okay, so now I kind of know what I'm, you know, as long as I make X number of five, whatever it was, $5,000 a month, I can start to split that up every time I get a check and say, great, I'm going to put 50% to, you know, staying alive and, you know, and then a little bit here and a little bit there and, and literally having the money separated so that I could look and see, you know, am I on track to make rent next month or not? Yeah. So by, by having a, you know, by, by sort of dividing up each check that I got in by percentage so that I would say 50% of my check would go towards, you know, rent utilities, et cetera, the sort of monthly recurring expense accounts. And then another portion of each check would go into the monthly essentials, groceries, et cetera, phone bill, whatever the variable stuff. And then, and then the last account was for kind of whatever I wanted it to be, um, as well as some savings, I could look at the bank balance and literally just by glancing at the bank balance, know, am I on track to be able to pay rent next month or not? And that's the system that we've sort of brought over into small business cash management as well to say, you know, divide up your income based on these percentages to make sure that you're setting aside money for yourself and for profit and for taxes. And then what's left over becomes a natural budget for your expenses. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because a lot of companies get into the problem of, of projecting things, but not necessarily projecting the cash flows and the cash yep. impact. So going cash first seems like it'd be an interesting way of making sure that that's all taken care of. Yeah. And, it's, you know, I mean, again, if we're talking about projections, very few of my creatives love to do projections. <laughs> hmm. And most of the time, um, you know, a budget is out of date as soon as it's done. That it's yeah. just, you know, it's a wild guess. And, you know, the way that most people work with their bookkeepers, us included, is after we reconcile, we give you the reports, but those are now, you know, at least two weeks behind, yeah. sometimes months behind, depending on how long it takes you to get your bookkeeper information. And so <clears throat> the, it doesn't help to drive by looking in the rearview mirror. You have to be having something that's telling you what's ahead. Yeah. And I've also known personally, so I, I started in accounting, but I do more like FP&A and financial modeling and forward looking uh -huh. projections. Yeah. And so I know from experience that just because something's in an Excel model and looks fancy, uh, that a lot of times you'll put too much confidence in what it says mm -hmm. without thinking through whether or not it's realistic. And a lot of times people get too caught up in a lot of that planning and budgeting and 
reforecasting and doing all that stuff when they might be able to use that time more effectively and look at you know different components of similar metrics exactly so that's pretty cool and so when did you decide to go from working you know uh, doing bookkeeping to start teaching and training others uh, how to you know level up their businesses some of it was client need. Some of it was, you know, again, I, I sort of mastered the art of putting little numbers in little boxes for people, but um, I could see that it didn't answer their questions. And the more I tried to sort of make it work, you know, let's customize the chart of accounts. Let's make sure that we're populating the reports by inputting information in a way that it comes out so that the questions that you have are answered the more I realized that I was sort of um, just really sort of overworking that one muscle without strengthening the other parts of the business that also needed help around, you know, how do I think about cash or I want to hire an assistant. Can I afford to do that? And those sorts of questions that aren't really technically bookkeeping questions. They're more, you know, sort of CFO questions. Mm -hmm. And I don't like, you know, not being able to serve my clients. I don't like not having those answers. Um, and I certainly don't like not knowing that stuff for myself. So as I transitioned from a freelancer to a business owner, hiring a first employee who's still with us more than 10 years later, which is great. Um, I then also had those same questions. And so that just led me to continue to dig deeper, go wider, um, you know, I ended up certifying in QuickBooks and then later certifying in Zero, and then getting certified as a business coach. But, you know, none of that really satisfied me, mostly because I feel like business coaches in general have an area of expertise. Um, and most business coaches, people are really their area of expertise, whether it's sort of helping draw the answers out of a business owner or, you know, marketing sales relationships. And I am to my core, a numbers girl. So I just really wanted to talk about like metrics and stuff, <laughs> hmm. um, which did not excite a lot of them. And, and so it wasn't until I sort of came across the profit first methodology um, that I felt like this is the kind of consulting advising that I really love doing. That's, that sounds really cool. And so as you got started transitioning, you know, from working for other people to working for yourself, was there any specific, you know, most expensive lesson that you learned or maybe a big revelation you uh, got from doing something the wrong way, you know, transitioning to owning a business for the first time, I imagine. It was the first time I owned a business. Yes. Um, undercharging, just undercharging. I, I think I, and I think this is typical of most employees mm -hmm. that we as employees have no idea how expensive it is to run a business. Um, you know, and so one of the reasons I struck out on my own was I had been working for a different bookkeeping firm and just felt like I wasn't getting enough value out of them. I, not enough support, not enough of the kinds of clients that I really liked working with. And they were taking a huge chunk of the invoice, you know, and I thought, well, I can do what they're doing better. 
Um, and so rather than charging the rate that they were charging, I charged like 15% more than they were paying me. And that felt like a great raise. And then I started to realize, oh, <laughs> right. There's also insurance that comes around once a year and workman's comp and, you know, bad hires and, you know, clients that disappear without paying. And so all of those things that, you know, in trying to be fair with my prices and stay accessible, it took me several years to figure out how much do I need to charge in order to really be a healthy and sustainable business and yeah. then let me pursue the clients that are totally comfortable paying that. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think it's, it's not only how much do I need to cover all my overhead and everything, but also a lot of times it can be just undervaluing yourself or not wanting to sell something too expensive. And that can really mm -hmm. keep your price down. Even if you feel like you're delivering, you know, three or four times the value of whatever it is, it can be hard yeah. to wrap your mind around, you know, charging quite a lot, especially if you grew up with less money and, and it might seem like a lot of money, right. you know, to, to tell someone else they have to pay. Right. And so I actually, you know, there's very little positive I have to say about Intuit as a corporation. Mm -hmm. But what, one of the great favors that they have done me is by opening up their bookkeeping business because yeah. I think they charge something like $250 a month flat, um, which was around what we were charging for our minimum. And like that just clearly set the bar of like, I don't know if you've ever had to call hmm. into it, helpline, tech support, et cetera, but it's uh, a giant painful time waster yeah. almost always. And so you thought you could differentiate in that way. Right. That, that QuickBooks thinks that they're more valuable than I know that I am. <laughs> yeah. I was like, we got, we got to, we got to increase our minimum. We didn't increase our price, but we increased our minimum. And you know, I just, so that was, that was helpful to see. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could, how long ago did you start the business? 2003 is when I hired my first employee. Okay, great. And so if you could go back, let's say, you know, 17 years till you yeah. were starting that and give yourself some advice that you might've needed along the way, whether it's persistent advice that would last through those 17 years or just something that might've given you a boost of self-confidence or that insight you might've needed. Is there any advice you'd give a younger version of yourself uh, just as you were starting? Raise prices, yeah. Don't undervalue, and, and it's hard to say don't undervalue yourself because I don't, I didn't think that I was undervaluing myself, but but my prices should have been higher. I should have been, been charging market rate yeah, instead of something less. And do you think that was mainly because, do you think you were undervaluing your services or do you think it was more about the sales, the salesmanship and having to, you know, kind of put yourself out there for the first time? I think that it really came down to not understanding what the full expenses of a business were going to be. That again, mm -hmm. you know, because I had sort of come from being a freelancer, I had a little bit of experience, but, but it was all direct experience. So I didn't have to worry about verifying someone else's work or talking a client into like, why aren't they working with me anymore? Um, and, and so I just wasn't, you know, marking, I wasn't marking either one of us up enough. Yeah. You know, what you can get by on a freelancer as a freelancer is, you know, you can't, you can't as a small business. 
So I couldn't do her cost plus 15% the way that I've been doing myself, which I shouldn't have been doing anyways, you know? And then I finally sort of heard that like, oh yeah, you should be charging like two to 2.5 what you, what your labor costs are. And I was like, wow, yeah, I don't, I definitely don't do that. <laughs> and my overhead was really low, but, but that's my business, not somebody else's business. So there was no reason for me to try to compete on price you know, when price was not, when I wasn't offering a, a the discount offer. Yeah. And I think uh, people, if, if they are struggling with the same issue, I think one thing that can help, especially even if you're already setting your price, if you've already set it, or if you're going to, I think making sure that if you feel like you need to come down on price, just to increase what you're offering and increase the mm-hmm. value of it rather than decrease your price. Absolutely. Because it's not that hard to to at least either add value to it or show your value differently and, and market it that way. Yeah, and so one of the things that I still caution myself against is what I call the sample the sample size of one. So if someone one person says, "Oh, that's too much," that's not enough to make me reconsider my prices. Yeah, you know, if forty people say it's too much, and there are forty people that I really wanted to work with then maybe my pricing doesn't fit my ideal client. But that's, I've never had that happen. Yeah. Well, uh, so I'm going to do something a little bit different now. We're going to switch subjects. I'm going to go ahead and give you a get out of fail free card. And you're going to be able to use that to uh, pursue right now for us, any career or hobby or interests that you have that you've not pursued because you might think failure is too much of an option or a component of it, is there something that you would pursue and want to um, seek out more if failure wasn't an option? If I knew that failure wasn't an option, I would totally sing. Yeah. What kind of singing do you think? Um, this is going to sound hilarious, but I would want to be able to sing like Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. Like <laughs> I remember hearing him when I was a kid, my dad would listen to that music and I would be like, I can't sing. That guy can sing, but someone who's just like got an operatic power voice. Yeah, and so you'd like be in a a big rock band in stadiums so. performing for so. people. <laughs> nice. That'd or at be cool. least to have the voice to be able to do that. Whether or not I chose the stadium life is a different question. Yeah. So in reality, though, you'd say you don't have a great singing voice. Is that oh what no! It is? Oh goodness, no. Yeah. And it's scary too. obviously getting up in front of people and performing something that's not necessarily informative or anything. It's all creative. So there's a lot of more judgment of you. Yeah. Yeah. But that sounds like a good answer. I like that. And so going back to, you know, reality, what is the next thing that you hope to fail at that you're actually going to pursue? Oh, Hopefully yes. you don't fail, but you know, I'm actually mid fail in a good way. Um, we're, we're moving our teaching to online groups. That's been one of the things that we've done during the pandemic is to shift a little bit and take our one-to-one teaching and make it a little bit more accessible um, for people that can't afford to work with us one-on-one. And we've so far only really offered it um, to people that were already clients of ours because we needed to be sure that the, we weren't working with people that had messy books, Mm -hmm. but we are actually starting to open up um, uh, a course that I call Abundantly Clear, which is the theory through the first profit distribution of 
cash flow management for uh, creative business owners and people who don't think of themselves as good with numbers. That sounds like a really good course. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people hesitate because they're scared of, of math or numbers or just think it's too much. But yeah. if you, you know, just add a little bit to your knowledge here and there and, and kind of increase the tools in your toolbox, it can't, it's not like quite as daunting. True. Yeah. I talk a lot of it about, I mean, a, again, I already failed for you with the bankruptcy thing. So you don't have <laughs> to feel ashamed around me and yep. whatever kind of bad money management you have, like, unless you've had five bankruptcies, you got nothing on me. So, um, but I also talk a lot about, you know, learning the money stuff is a lot like learning to drive a car. And I don't know how many of us recall that feeling of getting behind a wheel for the first time. I learned to drive in my dad's 1973 yellow Volkswagen bug. So stick shift. Um, And like the first time I sat back there when I was in the driver's seat, I just remember having this feeling of like, I'm going to push the wrong button and everybody's going to die. Like everybody in the car, everybody (laughs) around the car, everybody down the street. Like I'm just going to cause death and destruction because I'm in this giant two-ton, well, not a bug, maybe not two-ton on a bug, (laughs) but a, a giant metal machine, right? But with a little bit of practice and guidance, very quickly, probably within six months, I'm flying down the highway with the window down and the radio cranked. And it's the same thing with any skill, right? Bookkeeping is not rocket science. It's really pretty easy. Most of it is extraordinarily easy. And so just getting used to the tool, like, you know, whether you're using QuickBooks or Wave or Xero or any of the softwares, Mm-hmm. Getting used to that tool and realizing you can make an entry and it's not going to blow everything up. Pretty soon, it becomes something that's easy and sometimes even fun. Well, that's a really good way of looking at it, and I think uh, a lot of people need to hear that in order to kind of uh, demystify some of that because a lot of times it can seem too overwhelming and too daunting. But like you're saying, it's a, most of it for the most part is just simple math. It's not like it's complicated math. You don't need to know a ton of calculus or anything like that. It's a lot of, it's just, um, just learning the logic of businesses and how money flows, but it's not too complicated to learn. Yeah. It's not even math anymore because the program does that for you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you need to know conceptually how the math works in order to just make sure it looks like everything's coming out right. But yeah, a lot of, of, yeah, (laughs) at least I'm doing a lot of Excel spreadsheets. I know if you're just in the system for the most part, you can trust what's coming out of it. But yeah, I was thinking more to set up, you know, some functions and stuff. You at least want to know how things work, but, but you're right. Every day we're doing less and less, you know, in in these programs or at least. Which is wonderful, right? Because it means people have more and more capacity to take care of the data entry for themselves rather than me sitting next to them and saying, okay, what's this one? Okay. What's this one? Yeah. And then I can, yeah. Sorry. Let's just spend more time on the strategy and the the more fun stuff rather than making sure everything's coming out of the system. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds really cool. So you said you're going to be doing this abundantly clear thing, which is a, an online course, a interactive course. Is that what you're saying? Yep. And then yep. what, what else are you guys doing these days? Uh, where can people go ahead and find you if they wanted to find some of the stuff you're working on? Oh, you can dredge us up all over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, my website is probably the, 
most direct way to find us, which is www.moxiebookkeeping.com, M-O-X-I-E. B-O-O-K-K-E-E-P-I-N-G.com. But we're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We may even be on Twitter at this point. Mm -hmm. We have a Facebook group called Profit First for Creatives. So people that just want to dip their toe into it and find out more about it before committing, um, you know, anyone is welcome. You don't have to actually be in the creative field. Um, Yeah. That sounds awesome. That's how you get me. I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on and being vulnerable and sharing, you know, some of your uh, past experiences and, and just in, in giving us a little bit of insight into how to think about money better so that we don't fear it, but view it as a a manageable um, kind of a question or problem. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.